I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome, Anu. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It's such an honor to have you and just talk about your amazing work, especially at this time in history. So right before we started recording, we were talking about, you want to say the interview you watched? Oh, I was, we were discussing about, well, first we were talking about, Anu was talking about how smart I looked with my glasses on. <laughs> that is true. I did say that. <laughs> And handsome. And oh, so handsome. Yes. He didn't say that. Um, Kate is adding that in there. But we were talking about how I was watching this interview with RuPaul and Oprah. And I think it's on Facebook Live or Facebook. You can go to Oprah's page and watch it if you want to. But RuPaul was talking about how you want to make more money that you just put a suit on. Is you just wear a suit everywhere. And then because he's also running Instagram ads right now. And they start off with like, if you want to make more money, put a suit on. And so he was basically saying you're you get taken more seriously. You get, right. you get first class upgrades, you know, on a plane and just all sorts of things. Which reminds me, my mother always growing up would tell me to dress up when I traveled. Sure. So, I knew. I am curious, like what, given your work in the world, sure. what is that? Why do we assume things about people based on how they're dressed? Well, I think it's something that's in us, right? Just, so this example that you've shared, Mike, is really about impression management. So we're trying to manage how other people perceive us, right? Because there already is an association that all of us have learned through social conditioning around wearing suits, right? So, you know, I was trained as a lawyer and we were told to do that too. Like, and you have to wear a tie, not just a suit. And it's because you want to make sure that people take you seriously. They know that, you know, you have all these degrees and you look professional, whatever that means. So all these things have become predefined. And it's kind of coded language for us to just, you know, see one another in that way. Like, I know you study all of this data and neuroscience and so fascinating. Is there something that happens? Well, now I'll ask you the question. So your work is about bias, Mm -hmm. unconscious and conscious. Mm -hmm. And I am curious. Well, first of all, do, do you mind defining that? Yeah, for sure. So How many basically bias is, no, it's so much fun for me because I get to teach people the difference between the two and it's so important to know the difference. So conscious bias is anything that is kind of a known attitude or belief that we have. So for me, for example, I love vanilla ice cream. I know it's quite boring, but I love it. So I'm like very, it's a conscious preference and I do not like pistachio, which is what my entire family loves. So that's very consciously I'm biased towards one flavor or the other. But we can also have that between people, right? So there are some people in the world who believe that women are fundamentally, you know, an inferior human, right? They just believe that the men are better than women or other gender identities. So that's a very conscious bias, you know, that they have. Now, that's okay. That's, you know, far and few people have that. But what's more nefarious, in my opinion, is unconscious bias. And so it's basically good intention people like the three of us who believe that all people are equal and should be treated equally and given the same opportunities, our brains have been conditioned to perceive one another in a way that leads to differential treatment. So this goes back to the suit example, right? You could have a doctor who's wearing a sweatshirt versus someone who's wearing a white coat. It's the same person, right? But we're probably going to take the person with the white coat on a little bit more seriously, Mm. right? And that's because of, our, of how our brains have been wired over time. So the way I define unconscious bias is learned habits of thoughts that distort how we perceive, reason, remember, and make decisions. And the science over the past couple of decades has shown you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that unconscious bias is one of the main reasons for basically differential treatment that people receive, whether it's in a doctor's office or a classroom or you know, in interactions in an employment situation or hiring situation to, you know, how people receive mortgages to credit scores and a whole host of other things. So for us, this is kind of a chip in our brains. So for me, the exciting work is, well, 
just as it's a learned habit, it's all we can be unlearned and we can relearn things. So that's what we do. It's about the science of neuroplasticity and really helping people be more, be their better selves. So unconscious bias is really why, you know, let's say a good hearted person can say right now in this moment in America where there is so much attention on racial disparity. And, you know, I know we both, all three of us believe that this is a moment of like profound opportunity and transformation Mm -hmm. um, that a nice, well-meaning person can say, well, I think everybody's equal and stopping there. Can you tell me why stopping there might not be enough for anybody who's listening who is that really nice, well-meaning person? Right. Because I think it's such a good question. So unconscious bias isn't about what we think, right? So when people say, I think everybody's equal, that's what they consciously believe. But then our brains have been wired in a way where their actions don't oftentimes comport with what they believe. So for example, you know, for the listeners out there, I'll say a few words. Just notice the first image that pops into your mind when I say these words. Scientist, yoga teacher, lawyer. Great. And just like notice, you know, the age of this person, race or ethnicity, gender identity, height, size. How many of you thought of someone like me? Right. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It just, it's just a thing, right? When you think of a lawyer, you don't think of Anu, but Anu is a lawyer. When you think of a yoga teacher, you don't think of Anu, but he's also a yoga teacher, right? Same thing with a scientist. And that's because our brains have been trained you know, through so much social conditioning from books to movies we've watched to the advertising to our kind of primary family and like spaces of belonging. So these stories are what we've learned And a lot of times those stories have really harmed us because they've created the sense of separation that we feel from other people. And it makes us feel oftentimes afraid of people because, you know, we believe in these stories, whereas all of us are just human beings. You know, we're 99.99% identical. And it's funny, the Human Genome Project, which mapped the entire human DNA in the year 2000, actually found that people that are put in different racial groups have more DNA in common than people in the same racial group. So basically, Mm. a Kenyan and a Russian may have more similarity than a Russian and a Russian or a Kenyan and a Kenyan. Now, people are like, well, how could that be? It's like, well, because this is how human variation happens, right? And our phenotype, the way we look, our skin color is just one aspect of the diversity of things that make us up, our talents or gifts. And for me, this was really telling. And I learned this in college because I was uh, you know, studying biology. And I was like, yeah, it's always so interesting when like, I see people from different cultures, but they act like people like I know. So I lived in South Korea, for example, after college. And I had a homestay family and I didn't speak a word of Korean. So I had to learn a little bit of Korean. But my homestay mom, who was a Korean woman, clearly, the way she acted and her mannerisms were just like my aunt. Like, exactly. I would call her emo, and sometimes I would confuse it because I would call her bua, which is what you call aunt in Hindi. And I'm like, wait, like, they are like two different humans, yet their mannerisms were so similar. And all of us have had experiences like that. And that's because that's human variation. Yet the story of, you know, of race in particular, and then also gender and other human identities prevents us from really feeling close to one another. So you spoke about neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know what that is, can you explain it? And how does this apply to unconscious bias? Oh my gosh, yes. Because neuroplasticity is really exciting because what it means is that we as human beings have the ability to rewire our brain. So our brains are plastic, not static. So a lot of this work, actually, when I was in college in the early 2000s, there was still people that believed that our brains are static, that after a certain age, we can't learn anything, our brain cells die. But in the last you know, 15, 20 years, um, a lot of research, particularly in the space of mindfulness, has shown that we can change our habits and our behaviors through regular practice. And for a lot of us, we're like, that's like, duh, like, 
as we were growing up as kids, practice makes perfect. So just as we practice, you know, how to cook or playing the piano or, you know, learning a sport, we can practice these new skills. And that's because our brains have those ability to learn. And that's neuroplasticity. One kind of really famous kind of, uh, what's the word, like an aphorism that Donald Hebb, who's like a neuropsychologist in the 50s, says that neurons that fire together, wire together. I love that saying, but I didn't know who it was from. Yeah. So basically, right now, you know, if our neurons have been shaped in a certain way, when we think of people, whether it's black people or women or Latinx people or gay people, you know, that's just how they're being fired right now. Like, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. But we can become aware of it through mindfulness and then rewire those associations. And that's the promise of the science. It's really mm. exciting. So that's... Neuroplasticity. This is where the I have to ask questions for the regular folk over here, unless <laughs> the, the smart people here. So neuroplasticity is the ability to rewire our brains mm-hmm. through thoughts or programs mm-hmm. that we're probably going to talk about here in a little bit, you know, like what your company does. Okay, got it. So can you explain a little bit more about the neurons that fire together wire together and Mm -hmm. and like an example of what it would be to fire together and wire together right so like one example i love to use is that you know when we were kids and at least when i was a kid i'll just talk i'll speak from the eye when i was a kid and (laughs) i'd be outside and anytime i saw an insect initially i was like super fascinated what is this thing moving i want to hold it i want to capture it Yet the people around me, particularly the other kids, the adults, like, ew, that's so gross. What's going on? And I was like, wait, what? And then I realized over time that I too started feeling that, right? Insects are just insects. They're just objects, right? They're moving animals and a lot of people love them, but most of us don't. But it's something we've learned, right, to associate with insects. I mean, if they didn't exist, our ecosystems wouldn't exist. Like, there's such an important part of, you know, life across species, yet there's that wiring in our brain that we've received from such an early age. Um, so similar to that, there's also, you know, lots and lots of associations we have with human identities. So from a very young age, we're told that women are supposed to be homemakers. They're supposed to know how to cook. They're supposed to take care of kids. They're more nurturing. And the whole idea of motherhood... I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those things, but it doesn't apply to every person, you know, who is female identified, yet we almost create that expectation. Same thing with men, right? So it's, it's something that becomes really socially conditioned. And then similarly, what we're seeing now, particularly around the protests and the uprisings, there's a lot of associations that go with being black in our society. Now, it's not something all of us, you know, good intention people believe, but we have the science to now show that we have these associations. And the scary part is that a large number of black people have them too about themselves because their brains are just like the rest of ours because we're the same species, but it was conditioned by those same social cues. You know, so that's why it's so important to think about this, not just a personal thing, but it's something we do together collectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... When it comes to unconscious bias, mm-hmm. how did you, first of all, mm-hmm. do you mind sharing yeah. your personal story of why talking about unconscious bias is even a passion? Or like is even, you know, I don't know if you would call it your calling, but mm-hmm. it seems to be <laughs> from the outside. <laughs> Um, but at least a you know big part of your work. So can sure. you talk about what drew you to this work specifically? Yeah, for sure. So like my work is really around breaking bias, but kind of bigger picture, I'm like envisioning that we as a collective can create a world where we feel like we belong everywhere. You know, and this work around belonging is so important to me. So Brene Brown, who's like one of my rock stars, she talks about belonging, right? Where we can truly feel authentic, like not needing to like hide parts of us to feel like we can fit in or, and that's what I wanted to imagine for myself. And it really starts with self. I think for me, my, my story was that I'm an immigrant to the country and I'm a person of color and, you know, I'm queer. 
And a lot of these identities were a real pain point for me. So, you know, I would actually try to hide those aspects of myself because I had bought into a lot of the stories that accompanied those identities. And these stories were mostly negative, and that's what stereotypes often are. And for me, that caused me a lot of like emotional and mental turmoil to the point that, you know, I found myself, you know, being suicidal and attempting to take my own life. Yet, you know, I've had a really strong mindfulness practice from a very young age. And even though I was practicing this, I was doing yoga and meditation and working out and all these embodied practices, the stories were oftentimes overpowered, this idea of presence. But they also came to the rescue. Because, you know, I think for me, about 12 years ago, I began seeing how a lot of these stories that I was believing were just stories. And when I could see myself like being awareness beyond those stories, that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. How am I believing other people's ideas of me? You know? And that's what the big breakthrough was for me. And then I started seeing that this wasn't something that only I have. It's all of us to a certain extent, you know? This is what we do again to fit in. And I was in law school at the time. One of the things that kind of tortured me was just seeing how much protesting that was happening in the law school itself from law students and even faculty around racism, around lack of diversity, you know, in the student population, the faculty population. And it was causing a lot of pain and suffering across the board, yet there was no action. And I would talk to alumni from like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, like, oh yeah, we did that too. I'm like, what? That's crazy. So, and then I would ask them, so what's the solution? Because I'm like very like solutions oriented. I'm like, what do we do about it? Like, well, this is systemic racism. I'm like, great. What is systemic racism, right? And then they're like, okay, we'll read these 10 books. And I like to read books. I know Mike, I'm a big nerd. I like it. Um, so I did read those books. And I was like, okay, so, but I like to read books because I want to simplify it for the people. Because I come from, you know, I grew up in, you know, inner cities in New York City, you know, I know that people that I grew up with don't understand these books, but I've somehow been privileged to understand this stuff. So all systemic racism means is that there are embedded power disadvantages in every system at the root. So it could be systemic sexism, systemic homophobia, whatever it is. Racism is about embedded power disadvantages around race. And I was like, it's too cerebral. Like, what does that mean? Power, just embedded power disadvantage. What? So after law school... I was like, well, as a scientist, I was thinking like, hey, like everything we've ever wanted to know about anything has already been studied. Someone has written a book about something. So I was like, okay, well, let's go to the research. And we basically went to the research and looked at eight different areas of like life outcomes, health, education, criminal justice, political participation, media, employment, wealth, and housing. We're like, well, what are the root causes of racial disparities here? Because there are racial disparities across the board. And can we synthesize all of that? And we did. And we discovered four root causes of systemic racism. In other words, this is what systemic racism is. And basically what those four things are, bias, presence of traumatic environmental factors, lack of resources, and policies. Mm-hmm. So bias, of course, we've talked about already. It's conscious and unconscious bias. Presence of traumatic environmental factors is anything from landfills to toxic waste sites to incinerators that have been placed in communities of color for the most part. And that, of course, affects people's health, the air they breathe, the water they drink, and comes out in so many other disparities. And the third is lack of resources, anything from safe green parks to public transportation to access to supermarkets, absent in communities of color. And then policies, you know, that are maybe like racially neutral, but enforced in a discriminatory manner. So it's like, oh, so these four things are kind of interdependent and they're creating this massive inequality. So what can I do about it? What can we do about it? The only thing we can do something about is bias because it's under our control. And if we can get a critical mass of people who have broken their biases, then they can affect the other three root causes. So that's kind of how the idea began. And very that's upstream. Very upstream. <laughs> Love it so much. I love it so much. So, okay. Oh, I'm going to, of course, continue to ask questions. Would you like to 
Before we go into solutions, <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that of course. and what people can do to like yeah. work on their bias. I want to ask you, you wrote this open letter recently. Mm-hmm. When did you publish this? Well, actually today. Oh, that's why wow. I, I was on your website yesterday. I was like, how kind did I miss this? Okay. So I was reading it right before we got on. Perfect. Okay. And so my question is reading this letter and then we were briefly talking before we started recording about some stuff. And when I'm reading this letter, it's like there's an element was like you went away from this work and now you're being called to come back. Mm-hmm. What has transpired in this? Because you also mentioned, can I say something that you told sure. me before we recorded? It's like you finding yourself in this to lead it. You said something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about that. What has happened in your life or where, where right. did this resurgence come from in the, during this time? Yeah. No, thank you for that, Mike. I mean, I think it's really personal. So I started my company, Be More, six years ago, like a little bit over six and a half years ago in 2014. So I left my legal practice to really do this full time. And it's been a really challenging uphill battle just because I'm talking about breaking bias, right? And we want to imagine a world where we can address the root causes of racial and gender disparities. But a lot of these issues, this is like pre-Me Too, pre-Black Lives Matter when I started this. And for folks, this is an afterthought. You know, it's not because they don't care about it. It's just there's so much fear in the conversation. So for me, you know, I trained over 16,000 professionals in the last six years at 200 companies. And we had an impact on 10 million people. This is what we tell all the investors and funders. But like deep down inside, I felt like that's like you know, a drop in the bucket compared to the enormity of the injustice and the cruelty that exists in our systems. So that's the last year was really about reflecting on that. And I was considering, you know, going in-house in a big tech company. And I actually was in conversations with several companies because I thought that I could have a bigger impact there. And then COVID happened and it really forced me to reflect on what my role is in this moment. And I decided that I think I just have to speak and share what I know. And it's not about the impact as much because I was so outcomes oriented that I forgot about the process and the joy of this work. And for me, the joy of the work is to teach. Like I'm a teacher, as you could hear, I'm total nerd and I love to teach. (laughs) So that's how I came to, you know, be more with a new now. (laughs) Wow. It's amazing. That is amazing. And I think that's like, been part of the reckoning for many of us during Mm -hmm. COVID is realizing how externally oriented we've been and like, yeah, learning to reconnect with the joy of being. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, life isn't necessarily about revenue and not at all outcomes and day. I mean, it's not not important. Exactly. (laughs) Not the only thing. It's a part of life, not the part of life. And you know, I've lost two extended family members to COVID. Um, And I think, you know, it it was a big wake up call for all of us, you know, my family, but also just in New York City, everyone for the most part knows somebody who's been affected or actually perished to COVID. So I think that was a big, you know, moment for me to also be like, hey, like one day I'm headed in that direction too. But when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to be thinking about all the money I made or all the clients I pleased, you know, like (laughs) it's actually going to be things like this, like, oh my God, I had this conversation, you know, with Caden Bike and it was so joyful and fun. Right. So it's those types of things that really matter. Wow. Um, I feel very honored. We're going to be on your deathbed with you. (laughs) (laughs) But it is so, I mean, so, but I have a, I have a question about that. (laughs) Your work is so deeply purpose driven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I mean so is ours, but ours is like okay, I'm don't, not no, I'm not nope, demeaning. You're okay. down, don't yes. no comparing. Okay. I'm ask I'm just asking you the question. Yeah. <laughs> the question is given how deeply purpose driven your work is, mm-hmm. it's different than being like an investment banker. Sure. You know, so it's easier to be like well, okay, if I'm deciding life is more meaningful about like the joy of life, whatever, what are some ways versus you that's like so purpose, right? 
because the way you make money is so deeply intertwined with purpose, Mm -hmm. what are some strategies you have for setting boundaries and taking breaks given, you know, kind of this illumination you've had over the last couple of months. Um, And just kind of, you know, I'm just curious about that for you. Cause I can imagine given how important this work is, you could be like, well, I'm going to literally just do this 24 (laughs) seven. Right. Oh, and then I wouldn't exist because I'd be totally burnt out. Right. So the work that, you know, this, I'll connect my work to this also. So what we do is we teach people how to be mindful. So like the way to break bias and address you know, systemic racism is through mindfulness. So in of it itself, like we're deeply rooted in a spiritual practice and we want to invite others. Most people, like a lot of people already have a spiritual practice, but really to take that and kind of implement it in our interpersonal relationships. And I try to live that daily myself. I think the kind of, I have a trifecta of things that are like, I cannot compromise. First being sleep. If I don't get like at least seven and a half hours of sleep, it will make it up. Like on some day, I'm like, I just slept 10 hours. Oh, I was making up for like three hours of sleep I missed earlier this week. So sleep is really important to me. You know, yoga or exercise is super every day, even if it's for 15 minutes, just like to have, you know, kind of blood rush through. And then of course, meditation, like feeling connected to to source, to God, to consciousness, whatever you want to call it, to one another, I feel like that fuels me. And that's been a practice that I've had for a very long time. So those boundaries, like people cannot breach those. Other than that, you know, nutrition is, of course, very good and important. We put in our bodies. And, and of course, being surrounded by people who share these values. I think like friendships are so important here. Because, I mean, we're social animals. COVID taught us that too. <laughs> I know. Mm-hmm. I know. Totally. So how does one break bias using mindfulness? Yeah. So we created a framework called PRISM. So PRISM is an acronym for five tools. They really start with M, which is kind of the foundation, which is mindfulness. So we did an exercise earlier when I said a word, yoga teacher, and you notice what happens. That's it. That's mindfulness, becoming aware of what's happening. So if, you know, some of my people don't, if the people don't know what I look like and they heard the word, you know, or my name, Anu Gupta, there will be an image in their minds. And it's not a bad image or a wrong image, it just is. So one becomes mindful of it. And that's how we start. Then we move to S, which is stereotype replacement. And that's when we begin to replace negative stereotypes that we may have about stereotyped groups with positive real-life counterexamples. So because we live in a country that's hyper-segregated, so what that means is that two in three Americans have to move neighborhoods for us to be fully integrated. I mean, that's really... Yes. Eye-opening. But where... So you... Where would those people go? They would mix in with each other. No, basically the idea is we live around people that look like us. Right. That's how segregated we are. So two, so like two out of three people neighbors. live near near the people who look like them. So then we would need to move. So yeah. like we would have to take like two people from Maine, send them to Atlanta, two people from Atlanta, send them to Maine. You're thinking macro, but even at the city <laughs> level, right? Even New York City, we're hyper segregated. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's just people are choosing to live around people who look like them. We had a conversation on the podcast last week about this. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. About right. how living we in just feel like perhaps that's not what we would like our life to be. Yeah. Anymore. And we would like to maybe be, you know, some of the two out of three that move. Yeah, exactly. And then and we start that with stereotype replacement because what's happening is we need to create a repertoire of other examples in our own minds. So this is where we're building new neural pathways and positive neural pathways. So, for example, I'll say the word leader. Who did you think of when you thought of leader? I saw Obama. Obama, great. <laughs> you're thinking, you're thinking, you're not noticing, you're not being mindful, oh, Mike. I noticed. <laughs> I don't want to say it, like, it's because I, it, it was. <laughs> it's okay, all right. I'll just say it. It's because I was, I thought this and laughed at the same time in my head, but it was Trump. Like oh, it okay. was leader, yeah. Trump. Great. And yeah. Then, yeah. So the right. interesting thing he about- He is a leader in, yes, he in is. one way, yes. In a certain way. 
so the word leader is often tied to gender, right? Both of you oh. thought of a male figure, Man. yeah, mm-hmm. right. How many of you thought of Malala Yousafzai? How many of you thought of Oprah Winfrey? They're leaders, right? But again, so we can actually build sort of like now we can go Google leaders who don't look like that association and create a whole repertoire. And whenever that we hear that word leader, we begin to think of those people. Again, they have to be real life examples, and that's stereotype replacement. And then we move to some of the hard practices, starting with individuation at the eye level, which is all about cultivating curiosity and interest. So here I am, you know, with Kate and with Mike, you know, and knowing their work, I probably have a whole bunch of associations about them. Yet I can notice those associations, and yet be interested in getting to know them versus my ideas of them. So that's what curiosity is about. Really, such kind a of, gift. Such a gift, right? Dissociating. <laughs> dissociating group-based associations from the individual and then moving to pro-social behaviors, which are pro-social, right? Things like cultivation of compassion and empathy and joy, but specifically towards groups that are stereotyped, you know? So actually actively building those neural pathways, then moving to perspective taking, which is what P is, which is the idea of breaking those boxes altogether. It's imagining what it may be like to be in the shoes of another person. We don't have to know. We just have to imagine it, to feel it. So actors, some, well, good actors do this very well, right? We watch a performance and we get goosebumps. You know, we feel it in our skin. They're not those people, but for whatever, they were able to embody that, that human experience. But they're not special. All of us have that capacity. And that's something we can build with practice. And the science shows that it takes, you know, six to eight weeks of daily practice for us to build new habits. So it's not like, oh my God, I have to do this for a lifetime. No, you just have to build this habit and then the brain will do it for you, right? And that's the goal for a lot of us. I know you've worked in medical practices and hospitals and tech companies and Mm -hmm. all different kinds of groups. What are some of the results that you saw, you have seen? implementing this PRISM methodology? So there's been quite a few. I think one of the biggest things that people appreciate about this methodology is actually has nothing to do with breaking bias. It actually has to do with mindfulness itself. So if you think of doctors, you think of engineers, you think of lawyers, you think of teachers, everybody is just so stressed out. There's this massive like gap of just well-being or lack of well-being and wellness overall. So one of the biggest things we hear from everybody is like, oh my gosh, like these tools, as great as they may be around bringing bias, are helping me manage my day-to-day, right? So that's been kind of, and that's comforting for us because we're just using those tools and applying them to helping people take this beyond just personal well-being, but also social well-being. But I think more than that, it's really about not taking things personally, That's been a huge thing, right? So what happens is people are constantly walking on eggshells when it comes to these conversations around bias, around racial bias, gender bias, you name it. And people are really scared to make mistakes. You know, people are like, oh my God, what does this say about us? Who am I? Because like we have that inner critic in us that's constantly babbling away and we don't want to appear to be like bad in any way. But I think these tools help people be like, it's okay, I'm going to make mistakes but that's part of my growth. And that's been really important because that's the kind of strength and courage our leaders need to begin to create breakthroughs in their companies, whether it's in a health system or a tech company or wherever they may be, police departments. And I think the third thing is that that type of an attitude builds intimacy and collaboration, which is really important to advance equity and belonging, which is our objective. So when there is a disagreement, people have the tools to actually talk about the disagreement skillfully versus creating clicks, which oftentimes happens, right? Creates divisions. Totally. So we think of that as social cohesion. You know, so, you know organizations begin to have a collective identity, feel empowered within mm. to do this work together. Wow. Go ahead. You were... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I left Mike speechless. I'll just note to listeners. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is, it's also, 
like it takes me a little bit to process this information. Sure. And yeah, so that's what like it's not. Yes. Yeah, you ahead. and I are very different. We're processors. very different around this. I process by asking questions. Mike's processes by being quiet. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> which it's makes like, for it's funny podcast interview. Well, there's like a lot of words. So for this, I knew this. There's a running joke on the podcast about Mike's pronunciation of words and everything because I have a hard time with it. But like, there's a lot of words and definitions that you're sharing, and so sure. it's, it's a little bit. Yeah, it's hard. It's the uh, there's this in Scientology that you go through this side note. I had a lot of friends in Scientology, but they had this uh, misunderstood word section in the first book of Dianetics. They talked about when I when you when you say something and then people don't know what it means, like you lose them from that point forward. So I always come back to that place to make sure I understand what's going on. Hmm. So anyway, interesting, (laughs) you know, no, it's helpful. I said Scientology. I bet you there was bias that came up around it. I have a lot of bias yeah. around that word. <laughs> and, and conscious. conscious. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So what form does this methodology take when right. you're working with people? What does this, how much, how many minutes a day, six to eight minutes a day? Is that what you said? No. So, I mean, six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks. Yeah. 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 Six to eight weeks of daily practice. Of so daily. the science is anywhere from like, I don't know, some scientists like 12 minutes, some are 15 but, you know, whatever works for people, it's about building a habit. And, you know, people are like, what's the minimum I need to do? Well, it's, don't think about it that way. Like, what is it you want to feel afterwards, right? We're really trying to get to a place of freedom, like feeling what it's like to be free and not tense around these conversations, feeling more connected with other people. And also being able to release whatever traumas we're carrying around this stuff. Because I don't care what you look like, what your background is, you're carrying the trauma. Oh, yeah. You know, mm. whether it's your own or vicarious or probably both. <laughs> ancestral. Yeah, ancestral, you name it. So it's really about that, creating that healing space. But the way it works is that, so like eight weeks is a tall order to ask anyone to do something. So we actually have started with just like, let's start with a 60-minute training. Hour long, you do it on your own, you learn about the concepts, you practice some of the tools. And then you kind of are on the be more journey. And then slowly we aggregate to more and more and more. So yeah, like right now we have, you know, digital courses, you know, online, like breaking bias online, breaking bias in healthcare that are 60 minutes that give you all the essential information you need to learn everything. And then if you're interested, you can go deeper. So, you know, there's a four week program. Exactly. Mm. Okay, cool. Can you talk a little bit about the breaking bias of in healthcare? Like Mm -hmm. what are you referring to when you're discussing that? So, you know, about half of our work has been in healthcare because there's a, you know, one of the, we've known this for decades, actually, one of the root causes of kind of racial like disparities in healthcare is unconscious bias among providers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I come from a family of doctors, both my parents are doctors, my old sister is a doctor, some of my best friends are doctors. I don't think I know any doctor who like wakes up in the morning and says that, hey, I'm going to go to the hospital today and be racist. Like very few people ever want to do that. Yet we know that the decisions that they make oftentimes have biased implications. So for example, black people routinely receive lower doses of pain medication. And we have tracked that. You know, maternal mortality, you know, black women die at rates at least three to four times greater than other groups. And what's going on here? It's not like these doctors aren't providing the care or they don't want to, but it's something known as the racial empathy gap. Again, it's about how our brains have been wired to like read pain, pain receptors in people, and that impacts their clinical interactions. So our goal, and un- unfortunately, our medical training system is in need of a huge revamp. And you would know this kid because your mom's a doctor, and she and talks so a lot about dad. this. So is your dad, yeah, they talk about this all the time. They don't get trained in this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that for everything, race is a factor. You know, race is like a factor in clinical things, but it's not race, it's racism. And that needs to change. You know, like because of those four root causes, there's nothing intrinsically about black people or any other group that's different. It's about their lived experience because of systemic racism that impacts their health, right? But that's not something that our healthcare system teaches these trainees. So our goal is to really bridge that gap through this program. It's beautiful. 
It is really beautiful. So as people are listening and they're definitely excited about mm-hmm. like, okay, this is so amazing because I will say, you know, I've heard folks in our community and I certainly felt this way at the beginning of my anti-racism journey. Like this is too big. I could never possibly have any impact. Mm. Where do I start? Right. So you've provided something that's like, wow, I could start with my own brain. Sure. <laughs> right. And like yeah. start at home. Okay. So <laughs> Right. Start at yeah. home in my own body. Right. Because yeah. a right. lot of times, especially with the posts like the killing of George Floyd, it's been like, here's 20 books to go read. And here's 20 podcasts to read. I knew it's shaking listen, his head. You know, it's like it, all of a sudden I am like, oh, wow, there's an issue here. Not me personally, but just like I'm yeah. pretending I'm someone. Right. It's like there's an issue. Here. OK, I want to learn more. Now I have to go digest this 20 books and like. 25 hours of stuff in a week. Exactly. And then I'm going to get like on all these webinars and I'm like, wow. And then it's like, this was too overwhelming. My kid just pooped on the floor. That's our life. (laughs) No, no, no. That's everyone's life, right? Um, (laughs) I see like hashtag nope. Like I've done that work for you. I've already read those books. And, you know, of course I haven't read every book, but that's what I want to do. Like simplify and synthesize as much as possible so people can get the nuggets that they need to know to begin to shift it. You know, and I think anti-racism is important. It's a first step because it activates, it wakes us up. But our goal isn't to be anti-anything. Yeah. Our goal is to move beyond that, to be pro-freedom, pro-liberation for all of us. You know, but I think we start here because a lot of us have been asleep. So now we're waking up to that, but that's the beginning of the journey. Then we move beyond that. Thank you for saying that. Yes. I'm not saying those also, I want to make it clear. I feel like it's valuable to listen to the podcast and read the books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes like yeah. just, just coming back around. Also to that. educate yourself. Yeah. Right. Right. Valuable. Yes. Yeah. But like, you know, I think in reality it would be more helpful if our education system, like our schools and our colleges, like all of us go to school, if they would have just taught us this stuff. Like now we feel like we have to scramble to learn the stuff that, you know, we paid money. Like even if we went to public schools, it was taxpayers' dollars that we gave them to not teach us basic things about our humanity. Yeah. Like, that's silly. Yeah, you'd be surprised. They've done because we've done this program, right? So one of the two competencies we measure in our trainings is awareness and comprehension. And we've asked doctors about, you know, so you know, white and black people have, you know, different pain receptors or thicker skin or different like genetics. You'd be surprised how many medical professionals didn't know the answers to that. They actually believe that black people are fundamentally different from white people biologically. Again, on the one hand, I'm like crazy. On the other hand, I'm like, well, understanding these are human beings who were conditioned by their environment and never taught better. You know, can I like just blame them and just outcast them as you're a racist? Like, yeah, you'd certainly have consciously biased beliefs, which impact other people's lives, but it's also a systems failure. Another technical term for Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's helpful if you call them out after you say them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. So where should people... So, okay. I want to know your vision for mm-hmm. the world. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. if... Yeah, well, just to, I want I, you already said sort of your vision, but is there like where are we headed with this? Like, what's the vision that this breaking bias work is part of? It's about a movement. So, be more actually is an acronym for beyond equality oh. movement of opportunities rising for everyone. Can you say it one more time? Yeah, beyond equality movement of opportunities rising for everyone. Mm. So, be more. And beyond equality means equity and belonging. So that's what we're aspiring to get to. And to do that, I feel like my role is really about teaching and activating people. And the people are really going to be doing this from all walks of life and all aspects of our systems. So right now, what we're beginning to do is teach courses, starting with shorter courses to longer courses, like a four-week breaking racial bias course that will launch this fall. 
And then hopefully that'll lead into breaking gender bias and other forms of biases in the future. And then as people are taking these courses together over four weeks, they're also getting to know one another and we're building a movement. And then they're collaborating with each other because their consciousness has shifted, yeah. right? So they, now they see what they didn't see before. So I don't know what the complexity of the challenges are in the medical system. My gosh, don't even ask me, but I know they exist. And this is how bias may apply there. So once people see it, they can begin to shift those policies and practices and norms and whatever things that need to get changed to then really move towards a more equitable place where we all belong. I love Let that just, so much. I'm gonna put, hi, people. Happy birthday. Oh, my gosh. Hi, Andrew's family. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. I'm on a podcast right now. Happy birthday. Okay, Mama, I gotta go. Oh my god, that was so good. How many so people good. was that? Uh, it was like quite a lot of people. It's a lot of people. It's um, a lot yeah. of love. I didn't. They didn't tell me it was today. They just called. This, this is Indian families for you. They just expect you to be free at all times. <laughs> You're not doing anything, right? Nope, just here changing the world. <laughs> oh that's so, amazing. I just really want to like, yes. I'm soaking in the meaning of be more. It's, I had, I had to, I did not know about the acronym. It's so good. It's really beautiful. Okay. That's the future for the world, mm-hmm. right? Like what about mm-hmm. you? Because you're, because going back to your open letter, you talked about changing this to be more with a new right. and like making your, yourself as kind of stepping out of this. Mm-hmm. I understand why raw connected us now. And so when I read your open letter, I'm like, oh, that's why she put us two together. So like for this, for you to rise, right. you're like, you're rising out of kind of the shadows. And I, I don't know if that's the correct term. You can correct me. That was but a dramatic thing, way to say it. Rising out of the shadows. I think you're absolutely right. I was always, I was hiding behind Be More. Yeah. Well, this is the name of his movie. You didn't know that? Rising from the shadows. Yeah. It hasn't come out yet, but <laughs> this is it. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah, but what? how is this, like, when you're saying this, like, your vision of the world and where you right. see this is all going and kind of what you want to bring out, what does that feel like for you? Because you're the one that's going to be leading this charge. So I think my goal is really being a con- convener and a teacher. So I'm someone who's holding the space but building a container that's, you know, for me, it's really important that the container is science-backed and compassion-based. So there's no, I mean, shame, blame, guilt, if it comes up, let's face it but it's not something that's here to stay. We really want people to grow. So for me, it's really about being that convener and then teacher in terms of teaching these skills. So I'm taking more of that on. In the past, you know, I was being called in to fix problems and be a consultant and understand Paul. So I was doing a lot of these things, which I can do, but that's not my zone of genius or my zone of joy. So kind of taking a backseat there and let people that actually are really good at that do that. And then, so I can create my lean on what I'm good at. I hope that answers or somehow, somewhat answers <laughs> mm-hmm. where I'm headed. I think it absolutely does. Yeah. So great. All right. It's only for you to know and us to enjoy your response. It's true. You're always answering correctly because it's the answer you're giving. I love that. Yes. <laughs> we always have to trust it. We yes. always have to trust it. Because if I said, I knew that's not the right answer of your own life like that would make no sense that'd be me mansplaining to you (laughs) that's funny can men mansplain to other men i I know know. i was gonna ask that i don't know i don't know but i want i probably can right because i'm sure but we do that all the time it's just like a regular banter i think that's just men hanging out yeah it's just like men (laughs) hanging out right we just mansplain all (laughs) everything to each other <laughs> oh, that's really good. Constantly mansplaining. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love getting to know more about this because your piece about moving beyond anti racism and even moving beyond equality, right? And just like really moving into this place of liberation yeah. resonates so, so deeply. So I just want to highlight and thank you for bringing that to the conversation. And I want to ask you as a final question before you tell people where to come find you. 
mm-hmm. is what has it been like for you having been doing this work for so many years to be in a moment when so many people are paying attention for the first time? Mm-hmm. It's been so liberating. It's been truly a blessing. You know, when people ask me how I'm doing, I'm like, oh my gosh, I am blessed and highly favored because this is the day I've been waiting for because I guess I woke up to this, you know, 12, 13 years ago and I couldn't sleep after that, right? I was like so into it. And now other people are waking up and we're having such tender, beautiful conversations like the one we just did. And I feel more connected to so many more people than I ever have in the past. So I feel like it's, you know, for me personally, it's been probably some of the best, you know, month, you know, in the last, you know, 12 years. I'm not saying that it's best in the sense that people are suffering and I'm enjoying out of it. No, 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 none of that. But I feel energized. I feel like this is giving me the fuel and then reassurance that this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. If you needed a sign. (laughs) If I needed a sign. This is it. Like universe, hey. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've been preparing. You've been preparing for this. Mm. (sighs) Okay. So for people who want to dive in, break their bias and join Mm -hmm. the movement, Mm -hmm. where should they go? What should they do? So just go to Be More With Anu. So it's B-E-M-O-R-E-W-I-T-H-A-N-U.com. And you can learn everything about our movement and our courses and our social and everything else. Amazing. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you so much for opening this platform to me. (laughs) And thank you for bringing your family. That was very sweet. I know. Yes. (laughs) I loved it. I really did. (laughs) We always travel in packs, even during COVID. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Thank you, Anu. Thank you. I'm so excited that I'm teaching a free workshop and you are invited. It's called the Overworkers Recovery Meeting. If you want to relax, unravel, and choose a new way, then head over to katenorthrop.com forward slash O-R-M It's happening on July 14th, and I'm going to walk you through how to begin your recovery from overworking without sacrificing your results. So head over to katenorthrup.com forward slash ORM and join me for the Overworkers Recovery Meeting.